Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. This week, I'm starting you off with orthopedic conditions. Mind you, this chapter in Campbell is hefty and packed with information. It's about 40 pages long. It has awesome descriptions and amazing charts that are definitely valuable to look at. I'm going to keep this as short and sweet as I can, but this episode is definitely one of our longer ones. So keep that in mind when you embark on it. Let's begin with tarsal conditions, AKA in-towing and out-towing. In-towing is a rotational variation of the lower extremity alignment where the feet or toes point toward the midline during gait. Out-towing is a rotational variation of the lower extremity alignment where the feet or toes point away from the midline during gait. A torsional profile is a composite of measurements of the lower extremity. It is determined by the alignment of the foot, tibial torsion, and femoral version. There are six measurements in the torsional profile, foot progression angle, lateral hip rotation, medial hip rotation, thigh foot angle, transmalleolar axis, and forefoot alignment. The book has great detailed descriptions of these measurements, as well as a detailed chart describing the techniques to complete the measurements, documentation, and visuals. In-towing tends to not require intervention in many children. Components that may contribute to in-towing are femoral antitorsion and antiversion, internal tibial torsion, and metatarsis adductus. Increased femoral antiversion is noticed at greater than three years old and usually resolves by age 11. Internal tibial torsion is usually noticed at age one to three or four years and usually resolves by five years. Metatarsis adductus is usually noticed between birth and one year of age and usually resolves by age one. There are some great figures in Campbell that detail antiversion and retroversion. Out-towing has a few aspects that may contribute to the presentation. External rotation of the hip, external tibial torsion, and calcaneovalgus. True femoral retroversion is rare, and it is usually tightness in the hip external rotation muscles and capsular ligaments. External tibial torsion becomes worse with time, and calcaneovalgus is also common positional foot deformity in newborns. External rotation contracture of the hip is usually seen between birth and one year 
and tends to resolve in 12 months. Femoral retroversion may be seen in children older than three years and does not improve spontaneously. External tibial torsion is seen in late childhood and early adolescence and also does not correct spontaneously. Calcaneal valgus is seen in newborns and tends to recover spontaneously. We are going to move on to angular conditions. Genu varum is when children are bow-legged and genu valgum is when children are knock-kneed. Physiologic genu varum do not require intervention unless it persists past age two. Children with significant genu valgum may appear knock-kneed. If genu valgum is severe, surgical intervention is indicated either by stapling the medial femoral growth plate and the lateral growth plate of the lower leg. Femoral osteotomy is also a surgical option. Remember, because medial epiphysis grow faster than the lateral epiphysis, toddlers and preschoolers can have a knock need and toed in lower extremity posture because of increased femoral antitorsion and increased genuvalgum. This is totally normal during this time, but often a concern for families. Moving down to the feet. Flat feet are considered normal during the first two years of life and are often present at age six years. Most children will develop an arch in the first decade of life. A flexible flat foot is characterized by a normal arch during non-weight bearing and a flattening of the arch on stance. It may be symptomatic or asymptomatic. Intervention of flexible flat feet is generally not necessary. Shoes with an arch support and strong counter will not correct the flat foot, but can help decrease the wear on the medial border of the shoes. Rigid flat feet are only in about 1% of the flat feet in children. Common causes are tarsal coalition, congenital vertical talus, neurologic, neoplastic, or post-traumatic pathologies. Next, we'll move on to club foot. The goal is to correct deformity and retain mobility and strength. For extrinsic club foot, serial casting is a conservative intervention that should be started as soon after birth as possible. For intrinsic club foot, surgery is required. This is one too, where in the book, it talks a lot about the different uh, conservative methods for club foot. So it's definitely something to take a look at, especially the Ponsetti method. Blout disease is also known as tibial vera, which is characterized by varus deformity of the tibia, as well as flexion and internal rotation of the tibia and relative limb shortening in unilateral cases boys are more likely to be affected than girls. The influence of obesity should also be considered as well. Developmental dysplasia of the hip is abnormal development of the hip joint. There are four periods when the hip is at risk. The 12th week of gestation, the 18th week of gestation, and the final four weeks of pregnancy due to mechanical forces, and the postnatal period with swaddling and ligament laxity. Clinical screening includes the Bartlow, which is a dislocation of the hip, the Ortolani, which is a reduction of the hip. 
These two tests are often negative by two to three months of age. These are definitely two clinical screening tests that you should be aware of. Definitely. And make sure you understand what each of the positive tests indicate. Clinical signs at greater than three months of age include restricted hip abduction, leg length discrepancy, and asymmetrical gluteal folds. Intervention includes a pavlic harness and or surgical intervention if necessary. You are bound to see a question like this on one of the practice tests. So definitely keep hip dysplasia in your mind. There are many causes of limping in children and all should be seen as differential diagnoses. From birth to age five years, the following conditions may cause limping. Osteomyelitis, septic arthritis, transient synovitis, occult fractures, and Kohler syndrome. Osteomyelitis is an infection of the bone. Septic arthritis is an infection of the joint caused by bacterial organisms. Transient synovitis presents as rapid onset of hip pain, limited joint range of motion, and limping. Occult fractures are fractures that cannot be detected by a standard radiographic examination until weeks after onset. Kohler syndrome is osteochondritis of the navicular bone in the foot. The three that are most confused are osteomyelitis, septic arthritis, and transient synovitis. Osteomyelitis has a generally sudden onset and rapid progression can cause permanent damage. There is localized tenderness over the bone, swelling, pain over the metaphysis of the involved bone, high fever, and chills. Septic arthritis presents as the high fever, chills, unwillingness to move the affected limb, absence of spontaneous movement, and refusal to bear weight on the affected limb. They are generally more ill than osteomyelitis. Transient synovitis presents as a rapid onset of hip pain, limited joint range of motion, and limping. There are four variables to distinguish this between septic arthritis. Fever of greater than or equal to 38.5 degrees Celsius, inability to bear weight, and ESR greater than or equal to 40 millimeters per hour, and a serum white blood count of greater than 12,000 cells per liter. This is a great breakdown, Sarah. Make sure you guys are comfortable with differential diagnosis and how the recommendations would change based on the above diagnoses. In children between four and 10 years old, limping can be caused by leg calf perthes disease or LCPD, discoid lateral meniscus, Severs disease, and growing pains. Discoid lateral meniscus is when the central area of the meniscus is completely filled in. Severs disease is also known as calcaneal apophysitis, Growing pains present as pain in the legs. Leg calf perthes is a disease that came up frequently during our studying. It is an avascular event that affects the head of the femur. It presents in children between the ages of four and eight. It presents as an insidious onset of pain, an abductor limp, and activity-related pain that is relieved by rest. 
Pain is localized to the groin, anterior hip region, and laterally around the greater trochanter. This is not to be confused with slipped capital femoral epiphysis or a skiffy. This is one cause of a limp in children aged 11 to 15 years. It is a displacement of the femoral head relative to the femoral neck and shaft. It occurs in boys around 14 years old and girls in around 12 years old. It is usually unilateral and the pain is in the groin, thigh, or knee. This is of important note. Any patient that presents with a limp and pain in the groin, hip, thigh, or knee should be considered to have a skiffy until a differential diagnosis is made. Star that, put circles around it, maybe even some fireworks. It is super important. You definitely don't want to miss a differential diagnosis of skiffy. They're going to have to go on to have surgery as soon as possible. But with leg calf perthes, more often those children are just closely watched over time. Also, there's actually a large difference in age for common presentation of this. So remember that, and it will help you narrow down your choices if this was a test question. Other conditions that cause limping in children aged 11 to 15 years include Oscar Slaughter's syndrome, osteochondritis desiccans, tarsal coalition, Freiburg disease, and an, and an accessory navicular. Oshkod Slaughter syndrome is caused by a repetitive traction of the patellar tendon on the tibial tubercle or apophysitis of the tibial tubercle. Osteochondritis desiccans is a localized necrosis of the subchondral bone. Tarsal coalition is a failure of segmentation between adjoining tarsal bones. Freiburg disease is an idiopathic segmental AVN or avascular necrosis of the head of a metatarsal. An accessory navicular is an extra bone that develops on the medial side of the tarsal bone. A hemangioma is an abnormal proliferation of blood cells that may occur in any vascularized tissues. Vascular malformations are a rare congenital lesion that are caused by a defect during a vascular embryogenesis. This may not be evident until later in life. Skeletal changes are commonly seen with vascular malformations, although they are rarely seen with hemangiomas. Some miscellaneous conditions mentioned in the book include back pain, idiopathic toe walking, and achondroplasia. The presence of back pain in children can indicate serious disease in children. Findings that indicate further investigation include fever, weight loss, nighttime pain or pain that awakens the child from sleep, neurologic deficits, worsening pain over time, or inflammatory back pain. Mechanical causes that could be considered are spondylolysis, Sherman disease, sacroiliac dysfunction, and apophysitis. Refer back to episode 10 for additional detail on spinal conditions. Toe walking that persists after the age of two years in the absence of neurological or orthopedic abnormalities is termed idiopathic toe walking. There is no known cause. Achondroplasia is also known as dwarfism. The typical presentation of achondroplasia is at birth. Leg length inequality is also called a leg length discrepancy. 
The origin can be divided into a number of categories, including trauma, congenital, neuromuscular, acquired disease, infection, tumors, and vascular disorders. Impairments include muscle strength, poor cosmesis, musculoskeletal adaptations, and compensation. Secondary impairments include pelvic obliquity, scoliosis, low back pain, sciatica, excessive stretch on the hip and knee joints, and lower extremity dysfunction. Compensations include circumduction of persistent flexion of the longer limb, vaulting over the longer limb, toe walking on the shorter limb, and a greater vertical displacement of the center of body mass. The book goes through the clinical examination of leg length discrepancy in detail, so we recommend reading that section. Interventions include orthotic interventions, shortening of the long limb, and lengthening of the short limb. The general guidelines for interventions include zero to two centimeters of discrepancy requires no intervention. For discrepancy of two centimeters to six centimeters, orthotic use, epiphysiodesis or skeletal shortening is recommended. For discrepancies of six centimeters to 20 centimeters, you would do limb construction. And if you have a greater than 20 centimeter discrepancy, you would do prosthetic fitting. The big takeaway from that is that intervention does not typically begin until the discrepancy is two centimeters or greater. Make sure if you find yourself with a test question that has something to do with a leg length discrepancy, that you're really clear in your mind what question they're asking and what side they're referring to as the short limb or the long limb. They're going to give you options for both of those in the answers. So make sure that you have a very clear understanding of what the question is asking. Slow down and take your time. Sarah, that's a huge chapter with so much information, and you did a great job breaking down the basics and providing some initial differential diagnosis content, which I think is so important for this test. The PCS Advantage also has some great orthopedic content with their study guides. We're going to move on to sports injuries in children, which was chapter 15 in Campbell. This is a chapter with a lot of information as well, and I'm guessing for a lot of pediatric therapists, this is a little bit unfamiliar territory because it's definitely more orthopedic than developmental. But remember, you got this. Campbell starts with a lot of facts and statistics about sports injuries, location, type, and so on. I don't feel like reviewing this is the best use of our time. A lot of the next stuff that I review is going to be similar to some of Sarah's stuff that she discussed as well. So bear with us. I don't think there's anything wrong when it comes to repetition on this. The key to managing sports injuries is preventing them. We can do this by having a proper participation examination that encompasses history, medical exam, musculoskeletal exam, medication use, and even some specific field tests. The outcome of the exam can guide clearance for sports and identify or outline restrictions if there are any. Another component of injury prevention is a well-designed training program. It needs to be systematic and progressive with the ability to address weaknesses. Training should have all of the important components like aerobic and anaerobic energy training, muscle strength, endurance, and flexibility, and power, speed, and of course, nutrition. 
Let's talk about each of these components a bit more specifically. Energy training. A strong aerobic base is good to develop in the off-season, low and moderate intensity work that is relatively sport-specific. The book details specific physiological differences in children that highlights that intense training in extreme heat and hard training of long durations should be minimized until puberty. Anaerobic training is high exertion training of 85 to 90% of your max heart rate for short durations. It shows an ability to generate high power over a short period of time. This training is more of a preseason or early season training, and this type of training isn't really recommended for the young athlete due to physiological differences, and really it hasn't shown to be all that beneficial either. Strength training is next. This used to be highly contested, but currently several professional organizations advocate for appropriately implemented resistance training for young athletes. Remember from school, similar to adults, the first four to six weeks of strength training program usually results in primarily neural adaptations. Of course, safety is a priority in young athletes. Appropriate supervision and education is a must. Developing good technique at a young age is really doing these kids a huge service and should be your priority. A dynamic warm-up is suggested, and we need to make sure we are dosing appropriate volume and intensity. Young athletes do not need to be testing out their one-rep maxes, but should rather focus on lighter weights with higher sets and reps. For more information on this, please refer back to Episode 9, which goes over Chapters 5 and 6. Chapter six is the physical fitness chapter in Campbell. Yeah, awesome. Training speed is a little bit harder. There's a huge genetic component when it comes to muscle fiber type, but everyone has some potential to train the intermediate fibers and improve reaction time. Another way to prevent sports injuries is having the appropriate equipment and assuring that it fits. A helmet that is too big isn't going to protect the brain. We also need to be aware of the environment and thoughtful of the effects of the environment on the athlete. Children require more fluid replacement per kilogram of body weight than adults do. Kids also do not sweat as much, so they carry a larger heat load. All that to say, heat is not a great place to be doing intense stuff with kids, so pay attention and make sure they're hydrating adequately. Common signs of dehydration are irritability, headache, nausea, dizziness, weakness, cramps, abdominal distress, and decreased performance. Injuries with sports can come from one big event or due to overused microtrauma incidences. Injury types are either fractures, joint injuries, or muscle tendon unit injuries. Let's talk a little bit about fractures first. Stress fractures are a relatively new fracture type in children, likely due to more specialization and increased training demands. These are hard to even visualize on radiographs until six to eight weeks. Symptoms include persistent activity-related pain that can be reproduced by indirect force to the bone. Another type of fractures are growth plate fractures. These are unique to children and you need to have the different types memorized. But don't worry, we got you covered on this one. These are referred to as Salter-Harris fractures. Salter is spelled S-A-L-T-E-R. Using the letters, we can remember the way the injury involves the growth plate. This mnemonic was game-changing for me, and I never got another growth plate question wrong. So let me break it down. 
S is a type one. It's straight across the growth plate. A type two is above the growth plate. L type three is below the growth plate. T type four is through the growth plate. And ER, the end of Psalter is a type five. And that's a crush injury with the R in crush being the R in Psalter. Like Sheila said, this mnemonic was also game-changing for me. And if I had this mnemonic in PT school, I probably would never forget it. We will definitely add a photo of this to our Instagram page this week. Joint injuries involve fractures, ligament sprains, and other internal derangements. You'll need to dust off your special tests for these. PCS Advantage has some great material on special testing for orthopedic injuries. Muscle tendon unit injuries are a particular risk for growing children. Growth occurs where the tendons and ligaments attach. So when there's an increased tension here, we can have problems. Tendinitis doesn't really happen frequently in pediatrics because the insertion becomes symptomatic before the actual tendon does. Remember that. Sievers and Osgood slaughters are two common conditions. Sievers is at the insertion of the Achilles tendon and Osgood Slaughter's is at the insertion of the patellar tendon. A huge new area of pediatrics is concussions. It's important to know that a concussion may or may not result in the loss of consciousness. Symptoms are usually evident immediately following the injury, but they may also develop over several hours, days, or weeks. Diagnosis requires at least one of the following criteria. Any period of loss or decreased level of consciousness, a loss of memory for events immediately before or after the injury, any alteration in mental state, signs or symptoms of a headache, slowed reaction times, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, sleep disturbances, and sensitivity to light or sound. Initial concussion evaluation should occur on the field or at the time of injury using a sideline assessment tool like the SCAT-3 or the child SCAT-3. It is also recommended that a few days after injury, patients be reassessed with neurocognitive screening techniques, symptom indices, and physical assessments. This is where PTs are becoming much more involved. PTs avow for identification of post-concussion impairments in postural control, musculoskeletal, vestibular ocular motor, and cardiovascular symptoms. There is a chart in Campbell's fifth edition on page 354 that highlights post-concussion assessment options for physical therapists. Specifically, I would make sure you know the definitions of the vestibular ocular motor assessments they discuss and how to evaluate these tests like gaze stability, convergence, divergence, saccades, and smooth pursuits. I think another very important thing to know for the exam is the return to activity guidelines post-concussion. This is something I definitely memorized. The stages are no activity, light aerobic activity, sport-specific exercise, non-contact training drills, full contact practice, and return to gameplay. An important fact, star this, an athlete should only move to the next stage if they do not have any new symptoms at the current step. If an athlete's symptoms come back or if he or she gets new symptoms, this is a sign that the athlete is pushing too hard. 
the athlete should stop these activities and the athlete's medical provider should be contacted. After more rest and no concussion symptoms, the athlete can start at the previous step. This is super important to remember. And I definitely remember in practice exams having questions like this. So this is definitely something to put on your daily study guide and to remember for the future. And I just think that concussion stuff is just something that continues to come up more and more. I would argue that I think it's still relatively new in the PT world, or it's, I shouldn't say it's new, but it's really becoming something that we're more involved in. So I definitely feel like I could see that becoming an area where they could be starting to have testable questions soon. I definitely agree with that, Sheila, for sure. Next, the book breaks down specific injuries at different musculoskeletal levels. The first is cervical injuries, obviously a concerning injury type with potentially devastating outcomes. Most injuries are caused by hyperflexion or hyperextension injuries. Hyperflexion is common with spearing activities and hyperextension injuries often occur without a lot of force because the anterior neck musculature is weaker than the posterior neck musculature. Hyperextension with rotation is a common cause of nerve root damage. Obvious concerns for neck injuries require radiographs. Another neck injury that they talk about is a stinger or a burner which is a traction injury to the brachial plexus, usually from a strong lateral deviation of the neck or a forceful shoulder depression. There are some good pictures of these injuries if you're unfamiliar with them in Campbell as well. Spine injuries are different in pediatrics than adults. Thoracic level injuries are rare. The most common lumbar injuries are the spondylolysis and the spondylolisthesis injuries. We previously discussed these in the spinal conditions episode, which was episode 10. Physical therapy for these conditions is recommended to maintain flexibility in the lumbrosacral spine and the spinal and hip musculature and improve trunk and abdominal strength and core stability. All right, let's talk briefly about shoulder injuries. The type of activity can lead us to the common injury types. Is it a contact sport? then we're probably looking at dislocations. Is it a sport with a lot of repetition like swimming or volleyball? Then we're probably looking at overuse injuries. Kids are hyperelastic, and this leads to an increased risk of passive and dynamic instability issues that can lead to injury. There are also some disease processes like Ehlers-Danlos that can further place someone at risk for injuries. AC sprains can be common, and it's more common in a skeletally mature athlete. Usually these are treated with rest, ice, compression, elevation, and a sling. Post-injury, some athletes need to improve their scapulothoracic and glenohumeral mobility and strength. The proximal humerus is an area of bone growth and isn't as strong. So fractures are common in this area. Once the bone is healed, again, strength and mobility of the surrounding structures is important. Little league shoulder is an injury to the proximal humeral growth plate secondary to rotary torque. Something of note, a skeletally immature athlete who complains of proximal shoulder pain without a traumatic injury should be assumed to have a growth plate injury until proven otherwise. The child needs to limit throwing and rotational activities until the pain subsides. Strengthening the scapula and strengthening the core are indicated until the patient is cleared to return to throwing. Anterior subluxations and dislocations are rare in children, 
but more common in adolescents. This happens with a forceful movement of the shoulder into abduction, external rotation, and extension. Rotator cuff injuries are not common in skeletally immature athletes, but may happen in older athletes. Surgery and rehabilitation is often indicated. Rotator cuff impingement is common, especially in swimmers. Usually in children, this is due to that excessive laxity and mobility of the shoulder. Conservative PT is recommended and all impingement positions like the anterior, the lateral, or the overhead positions should be modified until the patient is pain-free. Moving on to the elbow, supracondylar fracture of the humerus is the second most common fracture in the skeletally immature child, often a result of falling on an outstretched arm with forces into extension. Avulsion fractures of the medial epicondyle are also common and associated with throwing injuries. We really worry about the loss of extension with elbow injuries, so we need to try for early protected range of motion so we limit this loss of full end range extension. Repetitive throwing can result in microtrauma and an epiphyseal injury of the radial head and needs to be treated with rest. Nursemaid's elbow can happen with a forceful distraction of the arm in a child younger than seven. This causes subluxation of the radial head due to poor development of the annular ligament. Elbow dislocation is usually due to a fall on an abducted and extended arm. Early reduction is important. Little league elbow is due to an extreme valgus stress placed on the epicondyles during the acceleration phase of pitching. If not recognized, separation of the medial epicondyle and over time may result in complete avulsion. Lateral epicondylitis is also referred to as tennis elbow, and that's due to repetitive microtrauma to the wrist extensors. In the case studies book that we gave to you guys as a resource, there are some really good case studies on some of these elbow and shoulder injuries in kids, and it has a lot of good information in the chapters as well. All right, now we're going to go and finish up the upper extremity. We're going to talk about wrist and hand injuries. Fractures follow an age-related pattern. In young children, after a fall, you may see a torus or a buckle fracture, which is where the wrist absorbs most of the impact and compresses the bony cortex on one side and remains intact on the other, creating kind of a bulging effect. You may also see a distal radial epiphysis fracture. In children, metaphysial fractures of the distal radius and ulna are common. Sometimes these can be displaced and will need to be operated on. Obviously, therapeutic goals will be to return to normal mobility and strength and encourage normal mechanics. Athletes that bear weight on their hands can have trouble with carpal tunnel syndromes and problems in the triangular fibrocartilage complex. In older children, 12 to 15, fractures to the navicular or the scaphoid bone is common following a fall on a flexed hand and an outstretched arm. Thumb carpal metacarpal dislocations are possible and requires the thumb to be in a spica. And we need to kind of watch out for chronic instability with these injuries. Jammed fingers can also commonly happen in all age groups. We need to be cautious about fractures to the growth plates in the fingers. And sometimes these injuries actually do require an open reduction internal fixation. Okay, woo, we finished with the upper extremity. 
This episode is getting long. I want to take this moment to remind you that PCS Advantage has a chart for all of these injuries in a handy dandy table. If you're not doing that program, feel free to make a table of your own for studying. I think that will really help you organize this information. With the hip, traumatic dislocation most commonly happens posterior and requires quick relocation to minimize the risk of avascular necrosis. Fractures are usually a result of a very traumatic injury. The skiffy that we talked about before is not caused by sports, but it must be considered in any athlete with persistent hip or knee pain and a limp. It happens often during periods of rapid growth and obesity is a risk factor. Surgical reduction is necessary. And remember, we always assume the person has a skiffy until we rule it out. In the hip and pelvis, the most common fracture type is the avulsion fracture. And this can happen at the ASIS from the sartorius, the ischium from the hamstring, the anterior inferior iliac spine from the rectus femoris, and the iliac crest from the abdominals. Snapping hip syndrome is an overuse problem, and it's either an irritation of the IT band over the greater trochanter or the iliopsoas tendon near its femoral insertion. In young athletes 5 to 12, avascular necrosis of the femoral head is a serious condition. Bracing or surgery may be required depending on the degree of the progression. Knee injuries happen a lot. The knee has very little anatomic protection. Fractures around the knee are uncommon, but a concern because of their possible influences on growth. Remember, most of the growth happens in the lower leg around the knee at the distal femur and the proximal tibia. So special attention needs to be given with fractures in this area. Ligament injuries are increasing in young athletes. All ligament injuries need to be assessed for coincident physis fractures. ACL tears have also been increasing. The mechanism of an ACL injury is a non-contact deceleration or change of direction activity with valgus loading and an anterior tibial shear. They do worry in these injuries about surgery before the age of 15. Surgery requires a proximal tibial drill hole right through the growth plate, which seems like a bad idea when growth remains. There is a modified ACL reconstruction that pairs the growth plate. Juvenile osteochondritis desiccans is a focal lesion or injury of the subchondral bone region. The most common location of this is the posterior lateral aspect of the medial femoral condyle. Usually this condition causes pain, recurrent swelling, and possibly a catch feeling in the knee. Meniscus injuries are usually in combination with other injuries such as an ACL, chondral injuries, and tibial fractures. The goal is to preserve as much of the meniscus as possible. Discoid lateral meniscus, like we talked about above, is an abnormal meniscus variant in children and should be considered with joint line tenderness, decreased joint mobility, effusion, and a snap in the lateral compartment of the knee during extension. The patella can also cause some problems. Patellofemoral pain is common and usually due to overuse of the extensor mechanism and can be from anatomic factors such as patella alta, a large Q angle, hip antiversion, pes planus, and hyperpronation. Patellar instability and subluxation is common laterally and can also be due to some of those anatomic issues. The knee has two common apophysitis areas at the tibial tuberosity, 
We have Osgood Slaughter's or the inferior pole of the patella, which is the syndig larsen johansson syndrome. Last but not least, the ankle and foot. This is where that Salter-Harris classification comes into play at the distal fibula. So make sure you know those classifications well. There is also the Ottawa rule for indications of an ankle radiograph that you should know. Something to consider when answering questions regarding ankle injuries. Epiphyseal fractures are more common in the young athlete as this area is more pliable, but in the older athlete with closed growth plates, the same injuries are more likely to cause ankle sprains. Stress fractures are common in the metatarsals with jumping and distance running activities. There are also some ischemic events to consider. Freiburg infarction is an avascular necrosis of the metatarsal epiphysis and is usually from being up on the toes, and the most common location is that second metatarsal. This requires conservative treatment in a walking cast. Sievers disease is the apophysitis of the calcaneus and is equivalent to Osgood slaughters of the knee. Tight heel cords are common and stretching, and sometimes the use of a heel lift is recommended. Intervention for children with sports injuries at the body function and structures level focuses on static and dynamic stretching, open and closed chain strengthening, gait retraining, and neural re-education. At the activities and participation levels, we're looking at functional return to their activity of choice. Education plays a huge role because their bodies are still growing and developing. They are truly not little adults. Return to activities should be based on objective measures. There needs to be demonstration of adequate tissue healing, resolution of impairments, adequate muscle strength and performance, and acceptable levels of functional performance necessary for the demands of their activity. One objective measure mentioned in Campbell is that the involved side muscle strength should be at least 85 to 95% of the contralateral muscle. The book finishes this chapter by discussing the importance of sports for children with disabilities. There is clear evidence of psychological and physiological benefits of sports participation. Obviously, considerations to the specific diagnosis need to be made. Things like biomechanics, heart conditions, low muscle tone, bone density are all factors in participation that need to be considered. You guys, those chapters are loaded. There are hardly any pictures or graphics in them either. It's just a lot of words. It was hard for me to get through it when I studied it for the exam, to be honest, and it was hard to get through it again. I think the only way to make studying this material more efficient is to create a chart of the body part, the diagnosis, the symptoms, and the recommended treatments. It feels like so much, but the reality is you could be asked a case question on any of these sports injuries, and it may require you to walk through the diagnosis, the presentation, and the rehabilitation recommendations for that. Imagine a locking question on the exam where they make you answer the question and then it locks when the next question is presented. So you cannot go back. Yes, those are on the exam. Let's say it's a case series question asking you to identify the diagnosis for a 13-year-old overweight male with persistent hip pain. Once you've identified Skippy, they may ask you to identify potential treatments like rest, immediate referral to an orthopedic doctor, or hip strengthening activities. Your answer would be the immediate referral to an orthopedic physician. Okay, I'm not an item writer, so please don't come at me about this example. 
I'm just trying to help you understand how things might be presented and helpful ways to get this information solid in your brain. Differential diagnosis is definitely a skill you're going to need to perfect. Thank you guys so much for sticking with us during this episode. We know that it was really, really long and there was a lot of information. So if any of you guys have questions, please feel free to reach out to us on Facebook or on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Definitely. We hope to hear from you guys. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.